church? So good to be with you all. I was joking with the first service. I feel like whenever I come up here after the kids have, have been singing, I, I feel like, you know, it's like a paparazzi moment, you know, like all the paparazzis out there. And then I get up here and everybody puts their cameras away. It's just like, whatever. It's okay, as it should be. So welcome, everybody. Listen, if you've been coming around for the last few weeks, you know that we've been opening up our Bibles and we've been looking at this sacred text known as the letter to the Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, without a doubt, most influential letter that has ever been written. We're going to be in the second half of Romans chapter three. So here's where we've been. The Apostle Paul takes the first three and a half chapters and he levels humanity. It's been a bit rough. Essentially, he makes the argument that every man, woman and child is a sinner. That's man's big problem. In fact, he makes a scathing statement with just one verse in particular, and that's verse 10. He says this, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and collectively together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's explaining the fact that the human heart is corrupt. And intuitively, if we were to be honest with ourselves, I think we would have to admit that this is, this is true. Even for those who see themselves as being moral, maybe they're not even religious, but they just describe themselves as being moral. He asks you this question, how good are you really? How good are you at consistently maintaining your own convictions? the judgment you have toward others, do you hold yourself to the same standards with any kind of consistency? What you expect others to say, think and do, what about you? Can you live up to your own standards, the standards you have for others? So this is a big, big, big problem. And what Paul is describing is not only a problem for man, but it's also a dilemma for God. And by dilemma, what I mean is that's something to be worked out because God is just and he is holy. By holy, what that means is he's perfectly pure. He is without sin, perfectly righteous. That coupled with the fact that he is just, he can't just ignore all the wrongs that are done. So the question has been asked, well, why doesn't God just remove all the evil people like right now? Why doesn't he do that? If he's all powerful and if he's good, why doesn't he just wipe all the evil people on the planet? Why doesn't he just destroy them right now? The answer is simple. Because it would be the end of you and me. Because to some degree, Paul says, we all contribute to it. We lie, we deceive, we defraud. We have, these, we have these thoughts that just aren't right. If you, just if you look at a seductive image with lustful intention, that is not your spouse. If you, look at a, a human as nothing more than a sex object, that's evil, that's evil. 
So what Paul says is, is he's right. It's undeniable. He goes on to say that we try to minimize the awareness of our condition, suppressing this truth through our own unrighteous actions. But it's there. So here's this dilemma. There's this massive, massive gap between the God who created you and you. It's this void. God is holy. Mankind is sinful. A holy God can't just turn a blind eye to all the wrongs that are done because he is justice. Just he has to carry out justice. So what that means is there's, there's accountability to be had. That's a problem. Well, Paul goes on to describe how God is going to bridge this void. And he's going to do so in the most loving and extraordinary way. Because not only is God a God of holiness and justice, but he's also a God of love, mercy, compassion, and grace. Verse 21. Now what I'm about to read, there's some thick theological language here. We're going to read a few verses together, and then then I'm going to help us unpack the meaning because it is incredibly rich. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested to be manifested to make known. Apart from the law, when he talks about the law, he's he's talking about the rules that God had given his people, in part to be a reflection of who God is. Also, if you want a well-ordered society, you might want to abide by these things. That's the law. Although the law and the prophets, those who brought the law and foretold of future events, they all bear witness to this righteousness from God that is now being manifested. Previously it hadn't been, but now there's something new, apart from the law was spoken of in the past, nothing new. The righteousness of God is now through faith in Jesus Christ for everybody, anybody who believes. For there is no distinction because at the foot of the cross, everybody is there. The one great unifier of all humanity is right here. We've all sinned and we all fall short of God's glory. And we are justified. By God's grace, and it comes to us as a gift, this is beautiful language here, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And it was God that put Jesus forward as a propitiation, which is a big word that just means payment, by his blood. And that is to be received by faith, as apart from any work, as he'll explain. So this was to show that God's righteousness, because of his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time now so that God might fulfill two very interesting roles. Number one, he's going to prove that he's just. And number two, he's going to prove that he's the justifier. He's just, but he's also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, so here we go. I've come to understand that the word righteous or righteousness is a complicated one for some of us. What does it mean? I want you to think of the word righteousness as validation. Let me explain. I think I I might have mentioned this a couple weeks ago. So you go out to dinner and you pull up to the restaurant and you realize that you have to pay to park. You're like, man, I gotta pay for dinner, now I gotta pay for parking. So you roll up, you pay for park, or you roll up and you park your car and then you grab a little ticket as you leave. This is your parking ticket. And you're going to pay on your way out. Then you approach the restaurant. There's a sign on the door that says, we validate parking. Great. So you go, you eat your dinner. And before you leave, you say, hey, will you validate my 
my parking ticket? And they say, sure. And they take a little stamp and they, they stamp it and then you get in your car to leave and you hand it to the attendant and they let you go. And you don't have to pay. The restaurant has given you validation. They have justified your reason for leaving the parking lot without paying anything. Okay? Think of justification as validation. So what Paul is saying is this. In former times, the way that people thought they could be validated or declared righteous by God was doing these works of the law. Now he says there's something new. God is doing something Something new is being made manifest. Apart from the works of the law, your validation, your justification now comes through a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ essentially is the one that stamps your ticket, pays your fine. Now, Let's take a moment and talk about validation because every single person in this room struggles with it. Every single person in this room seeks to be validated. I don't care who you are. We all seek validation. We all want to be justified in what we do, who we are. And in men, it commonly takes the form of validation through our careers, our jobs, what we do at work. And this isn't a bad thing. We want to provide for our families. And so we want to ascend the job ladder. and want to be able to take care of the needs of those we love. That's a good, good thing. But if that is the ultimate form of validation for you, what happens when you lose your job? What happens when you get laid off? What happens, not when, but if, or I should say not if, but when, you get passed over for the promotion and then all of a sudden you start to think, who am I? <laughs> Maybe I'm not who I, I thought I was. It's a good thing to want to provide, but if that's the ultimate place where, guys, we find our validation, we're going to be wrecked. It's just a matter of time before you're going to be brought really, really low. And this is why you often see men. You know, it's interesting because middle-aged men now represent the fastest-growing demographic of suicides. Did you know that? For women, it often takes the form of validation through being a good mom. You know, it's like, especially true of young moms, they have this precious little baby and they think to themselves, I just want my baby to be happy. That's a good thing. You want your kid to be happy. But if your child's happiness validates who you are as a person, good luck with that. <laughs> so what happens is the baby gets fussy and all of a sudden the mom starts to panic. Why? Because she thinks, uh-oh, my child is unhappy. I'm the mom. That's a reflection of me. I'm not being validated in the way that I want to be validated. And then what happens is really goofy. This happens to the men, too. Men will overwork, and they won't give their families what they really need from them, which is the gift of their presence, because they're pursuing this form of career validation. And what happens with the ladies sometimes is they will actually end up doing their kids a disservice because they're more concerned about what people think of them than what is in the best interest of their child. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's insidious. It's like, these aren't bad things, but we can take 
good things, elevate them to the place of priority, and then all of a sudden we find ultimate validation. So this is what Paul is saying. None of those things validate you before God. There is only one thing, one person that validates you, and that is Jesus Christ. So here's a little test to determine what it might be for you. What are you proud of? What gives you feelings of superiority, even over others? That might be a great indication of where you find your justification in life. Meanwhile, Paul says God, God gives you validation in the most extraordinary way, apart from the law. So Paul's Jewish brothers, this is, a, this is blowing their minds because they're like, wait, what are you talking about? We thought if we did everything that God wanted us to do, right, or at least most of those things, that is to say, if our good outweighs our bad, then in the end, God will throw open the gates of heaven and it's ours. And Paul says, let me just shatter that. It's not about works of the law. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know. You can't keep these things perfectly anyways. They were never meant to bring you validation, justification. In fact, if anything, they were to show you that you can't do it on your own. You can't fulfill them. You can't keep them. The encounter between Jesus and the rich young ruler proves this to be true. So he comes to Jesus and he's feeling really good about himself. And he's like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And everybody's, everybody has, has asked themselves this question. I don't care who you are on the planet. At some point in time, you put your head on the pillow and thought, what if I don't wake up? <laughs> like, what happens when I take my last breath, close my eyes, then what? There is a sense, the Bible says, that God has placed eternity within man's heart. That's why you wrestled with it. It's actually put there by God to motivate you, to help you pursue and understand what does eternity mean? And so as you, you wrestle with this, you, you begin to think, well, well what is it? What is, what is the answer? And for most people, it's like, well, hopefully in the end, God will smile because I've done enough good things. And the rich young ruler has the same mentality. And so he asks Jesus, well, I've, I've pretty much done all the good things. You know, I've, I've kept all the law. And Jesus, knowing him, presses in and he says okay I think you might lack one thing and essentially what he's saying is I'm about to press in on your form of validation it's your stuff it's your wealth it's the things you own so then Jesus says you've done them all good good oh one thing go sell all you have give it to the poor follow me and his response I'm out doesn't want to have anything to do with it. So this would have been the moment for Jesus to say, you're doing great. You just need to do one more thing to earn your way there. But it's not about what you do. It's about who you know. And this is nothing new. Lest you think Paul is making something up. He says, the law and the prophets bear witness to this righteousness. So there are these Old Testament prophets that foretold a future forthcoming Messiah with crazy detail, like where he would be born, the city of Bethlehem, this little, little podunk town of Bethlehem, raised in that Nazareth is a backwater place. All these really specific things. And so what happens is when Jesus comes on the scene, this is why New Testament writers are like, hey, can we reach back to what the prophets said? And can we square up their words with Jesus? Because if we're not talking about Jesus as the fulfillment of these prophecies, who are we talking about? This is why 
the Bible. There's nothing like it. Nothing comes close. Just in terms of prophecies fulfilled, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great, you, whatever, whatever it is, okay? Whatever it is, you throw it out there, nothing comes close to the uniqueness of this book. And that's what Paul is saying. See, this is nothing new. If you read it carefully, you'll read the words about a forthcoming prophet who's going to come and bring validation in a new way, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets point forward to it. So this is nothing new. The righteousness of God through faith now is in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And by the way, this applies to all of us. Verse 22, for there is no distinction because everybody's sin. All fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's like, how many different ways can he say it? Whom God put forward, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation, as the payment. And the payment came in the form of his blood. People ask, why did Jesus have to die? Great question. The Bible says the life of a creature is in its blood. So when Jesus spills his blood, he's giving his life. As you'll see, the wages of sin is death. That's the price that has to be paid. That's what it takes to validate your ticket. It is to be received by faith. All are sinners. And sin is not a word we hear at all in our article. When's the last time you heard that as a headline, sin? What does it mean? You might be familiar with how it was used in ancient times. Archers would draw back the bow, let the arrow fly toward the target. And if they missed the target, what would the crowd yell? Sinner! Sinner! To sin is to miss the mark. How do we know what the mark is? Well, that's what Paul explained last week. We know clearly, we are without excuse, the mark has been determined by God. So this, this is God's standards. This is what we read, what God wants for us. Just think of the Ten Commandments, codified in the Ten Commandments. We break a few of those commandments every single day. We're sinners. We miss the mark. We let the arrow fly, and it's going in a different direction. We miss the mark. And uh, Paul says, uh, this is the thing that unifies all of us. Every man, woman, and child is at the foot of the cross, exposed to the sinner in need of a savior. Now, notice these words of grace. That's God's unmerited favor. And it comes as a gift. And it's offered to you freely. Man, this is, there's so much here. You've heard me say before, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the what? You've heard me say this before. <laughs> Indulge every preacher's fantasies that people listen. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. You know this to be true in your own relationships. Notice the gift that God gives. What is it? It's his son. My daughter was in the first service. I looked over. I said, you know how I love you, right? You know I love you more than anybody in this room, right? Do I love you? Yes, I love you as one of your pastors. How much? Not enough to sacrifice my daughter for any of you. Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his love for you in that while you were sinning, Christ died for you. Now, God exalted Jesus to the highest places. So there's a lot going on here. To consider the word uh, gift. Um, so many religions make this critical error, even those that claim to trust in Jesus. For example, um, even in Mormon and Jehovah Witness doctrine, there's this teaching that Jesus' death was essential, you know? It's like we're all saying, good job, Jesus, way to go, man. I'm glad you did your part. Now the rest is up to us. And between you and the cross, this broken glass. Jesus did his part. 
crucified. Now, you got to get yourself there. Start crawling. A little quicker. You're slowing down. Might want to speed it up. You're not doing enough. The hope is that in the end you make it to the foot of the cross and you grab it and you say, I made it. I'm bloodied and I'm bruised, but I made it. I made it. I did my part. You know, among Jesus' last words on the cross were what? It is finished. You know what's included in that? Your work. He says there's a new manifestation of righteousness. It's apart from the law. What that means is apart from works. Well, then what is it? Well, the law and the prophets spoke about it. If you read carefully, they'll tell you about a new form of validation that's coming, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a gift through the grace. Gift, that's another beautiful word. You know, imagine it's your birthday party, and you receive this gift that you've always wanted. You open it up, it's boxed up so beautifully, and, and you pull it out of the box, and all of a sudden, the receipt falls. And you're like, oh no, how embarrassing for you. You left the receipt in the box. And you're like, no, that was intentional. Uh, that's what you owe me. <laughs> you know, it's my birthday. Yeah, there's your gift. Happy birthday now. If you, I'll take Zell or a check, either one. <laughs> you're like, wait a minute. If I have to give you something for it, then it's not a gift. Do you understand the richness of the language? Grace, gift, this is beautiful. Apart from the law, there's nothing like biblical Christianity. Why would you wanna turn that down? And people will say, well, Jason, do you believe you can lose your salvation? I, can you lose your salvation? How can you lose your salvation if it, if it doesn't depend on you? If your salvation does depend on you, then yeah, you're gonna lose it. You're gonna lose it every day. That's a big problem for you. Gift, grace. Now you might ask, why would God design it this way? It seems unusual. Why, why come up with this specific plan to bridge this gap between a holy God and sinful men? Why? Why this? Why this? He explains. This was to show you something. It was to show God's righteousness, the way in which God validates you. Because in his divine forbearance, he had in the past, he passed over former sins. Okay? So God's doing something different, doing something new. In the past, God passed over former sins. It was in a different way. Uh, once a year, the people would come before the high priest. The high priest would sacrifice an animal. Then he would, he would dip a hyssop branch in the animal's blood. And you'd be sitting out in front of him. You'd be in the crowd. And you'd kind of pass by. And you'd dip it in the blood. And you'd be like, <laughs> and you'd be like, And you're like, wow, that's pretty gnarly. Why would you do it that way? Because that's a very vivid reminder that your sin caused another's death in order to be forgiven, to be righteous, to be validated. It still had to be a work of God, but there still had to be blood that was shed. That tells you just how serious God takes our sin. We take it very lightly. We minimize it. We don't think we're that bad. We're, we're worse than we think. 
We really are. We've got some dark thoughts going on inside our minds and our hearts. We sometimes just lack the opportunity to act out on them. Did you see this thing? Somebody just sent it to me. Arizona, I don't know how where it read exactly. You can look it up, paraphrasing, but it's something like Arizona has the worst drivers in the nation. Have you seen that? Or we experience the most road rage in the nation or something like that. You know what I'm saying? That's you. <laughs> I love that, right? And it's me. It's like, that's us. This is our city. This is the place we drive. Talking about us. We're part of the problem. So now this is really interesting. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Now, so that, here's the reason why, so that God might, this is really interesting. He's going to play two roles that would not commonly go together so that God could be just. He's going to reveal that he is just. That he is a just God. He's, he's, what he does is in perfect proportion to what is uh, earned, okay? Earned, right? When you commit the crime, right? This is the kind of judge that is absolutely just. But he's also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so think of it this way. God displays that he is just. This is part of his nature. By playing this role of a judge, and so the judge hears the case, understanding everything per- perfectly, renders his verdict, and his verdict is perf- fits the crime perfectly. Perfect justice, because he is just. And then, after handing down the sentence, which is death, he takes off his, his judge's robe and walks up to the bailiff and he says, now, here's the deal. I've given my decision, and now I will give what is precious to me to make that payment so that the person who's guilty can be set free because my justice has been satisfied as long as they will accept it on their behalf. I look at them through the lenses of payment made, validated, righteous, if they receive the gift of having someone else step in their place, and I will arrange it all. Uh, I mean, like I said before, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing like it. So what are the implications? Well, he goes on and he tells you, why would you be arrogant, Christian? If you're proud, you don't understand the richness of your salvation. You don't understand exactly who you are, how undeserving you are of what God did for you. So then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So in, in a bit, what he's going to do to press in on this, on this languaging is he's going to say, if, if we were saved because of what we do, it's a matter of crawling across broken glass and earning God's favor and doing all of these really good things, number one, that's a mind meld because like, how do we know we've been good enough? So that's, that's mental torment. Thank God that we don't have to deal with that. But secondly, what, what he's saying is, there's this guy named Abraham and Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. So if it was a matter of works, he wins because none of the rest of us are willing to go that far. But then Paul is quick to say, 
But he wasn't declared righteous. He wasn't validated because of that. It was because he trusted. He had faith in God before he ever offered up his son. Before he was ever willing to offer up Isaac, he trusted God. He had faith in God. And then you will come to understand what kind of faith. Well, he believed that, well, God had promised him a son. He gave him a son. Now God's going to take away that son? What's going on? Well, he considered that God could raise people from the dead. If God asked me to do this impossible thing, he can still keep his promise to me. He can raise a man from the dead. See, even that was a foreshadowing of Jesus. That's why earlier Paul said, if you read the Bible carefully, you're going to see Jesus all throughout the law, all throughout the Old Testament. It always points. That's why Isaac was like a a foreshadowing of Jesus. What Abraham didn't have to do, God did. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It couldn't be more clear. So Christian arrogance is excluded. I love the, 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 the way that others have put it. It's like one beggar telling another beggar where to get the free food. And it's for everybody. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. It's awesome. At the foot of the cross, the playing field is level. We're all there exposed as sinners. And that's gonna be the beautiful thing about heaven, the kaleidoscope of heaven. You heard us talk about some of these trips that we take overseas. And one of, one of the coolest things, if you've never had this experience, it's amazing. When you're in another country and you're with brothers and sisters in Christ, you share the same faith, you share the same spirit, and you'll be singing worship songs. They'll be singing in their language. You don't understand a word of it. You might know the melody or the tune, and all of a sudden you feel like you're right at the throne room of God. Why? Same father, same adopted family, same spirit. You have all of these beautiful things in common, and that is the kaleidoscope of salvation as God created it. So Paul understood this better than most, and I'll close with this. In Philippians chapter three, he talks about his own righteousness, and he says, just to emphasize the point, I used to think that I could save myself, and I used to think that this righteousness of my own was what God wanted for me, but then I realized it turned into self-righteousness, if anybody has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. So like, you want to play this game of who's better, who does more works? Bring it. If you're going to stack up your own personal righteousness, stack it up against mine. I was circumcised the eighth day, which is the proper day, the nation, of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the noblest of tribes. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a traditionalist. As to the law of Pharisee, that means he was committed to the highest, most stringent standards of legal devotion, religious devotion. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I saw Christians as an enemy of Judaism, so I sought to kill them. And as to righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. I tried to do absolutely everything it told me to do. Externally. No accusation that anybody would bring against me would stand. And then he says this. These things were gained to me. At least I thought they were. But everything that I thought was gain was moved to the lost column. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that's what really matters. Why? Verse 9. Because no longer do I have a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness 
which comes from God. If you want to be validated by God, you got to know Jesus. I want to have you bow your heads and close your eyes. I don't want this moment to escape you. Where are you finding your validation? You know, what, what, like what is your justification? It's going to be in something or somebody. Paul's point to you is anything other than what God has so graciously done. The motivation was love, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. That's the motivation. That's how God solved the dilemma. Jesus would bridge the gap. If it's the desire of your heart to receive that gift, it's important to let somebody know. You can talk to me after the service or anybody that's on the stage. We would love to have that conversation with you. For those of us that have made that decision and we've been living in it, no room for boasting, no room for arrogance. It is something to be shared because there's a whole lot of people becoming more and more unwound because they're seeking the world's forms of justification. And that leads to disintegration. So Father, our desire is to more and more live in the richness of these words and to embrace Jesus and what he's done for us. God, to see you more clearly and to understand that all of this is done so that your righteousness can be made known. Lord, whenever that is on display, it's always for our good but ultimately it's for your glory and that's what we want. We ask it in the name of the one that makes it all possible. His name is Jesus Christ and God's people said, amen.